Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's good to see all of y'all here tonight. I hope everybody had a great Christmas um, and a great New Year. I guess I should say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hopefully, y'all had a good time home, whether you were at home, uh, whether you got to travel a little bit, whatever you got to do, hopefully you had a good time. I'm ensuring I'm going to trip, but um, anyway, y'all, I'm glad to have y'all back. Hopefully, you're glad to be back. I know you're probably glad to be back because of friends, not so much because of school, but that's the life of being in college, right? College would be amazing if it wasn't for the schoolwork, um, but y'all, we're excited to have you here tonight. If you were here the last time that we met, or if you've seen any of our social media posts, we're actually starting a new sermon series tonight um, titled Misconceptions, Fabricated Truths Exposed. Now, fabricated means that it's man-made. It's, it comes from us. So a fabricated truth really isn't a truth at all. But the truth is, is that we have a lot of misconceptions. This happens to us in life in general. So, for example, I can remember I had a very terrible misconception that language from one language to another was a one-to-one ratio. So what I mean by that is this. If I were to say, what's up? If I were to say that in Spanish to someone, depending upon the culture, they might not understand at all what I'm saying. I actually got to experience this firsthand. We went on a mission trip one time to Guatemala. And while we were there, um, Kaylee's going to laugh at me because I'm going to say a Spanish word and I'll probably be off, but it is what it is. But, but while we were in Guatemala, I got really close to one of the guys there who helped as a translator for us. His name was Esteban, and we got to be really good friends. Well, one day I can remember we were walking to the bus, and Esteban was right there. I hadn't seen him that morning, and some other people were there who all knew Spanish. And uh, I just said, Esteban, mi hombre. And he looked at me and started going, no, 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 no. Now, it, what I said is, Esteban, my man. Well, I have other people laughing around me, and I realized that basically what I did, I just called this man my husband. <laughs> like, it, you know, for me, I'm like, I was just saying, my man, what's up? And he's, no, 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 no. And so, anyway, we have misconceptions everywhere. Mine cost me a little bit of humiliation there, but for the most part, a lot of these misconceptions aren't a big deal. But... We find ourselves in trouble, and we find ourselves in deep waters whenever we have misconceptions about God, whenever we have misconceptions about our faith, whenever we have misconceptions about who He is and how He works. And so what we're going to do over the next six weeks, we're going to look at six different misconceptions that we have about God or the faith. And so you know that I didn't just handpick and think, okay, what what do these people struggle with? Let me look at all these misconceptions. I didn't handpick these. Basically, I got my leadership team of 35 people to pick out Um, different misconceptions that they think that we struggle with, and then we all voted on them, and we came up with the six that we're going to be talking about. And so tonight we're going to be starting with misconception number one, and that's this. God loves me more when I'm obedient. God loves me more when I'm obedient. Let me tell you what, what believing this lie looks like. It makes us say this. It makes us think that when we are obedient, we should expect good things from God. When I'm obedient, I should expect God to bless me. Whenever I'm disobedient, I should expect bad things to happen to me. I should expect things to go wrong in my life. When we are obedient, we feel superior to others because we're walking in obedience. Whenever we're disobedient, we should feel inferior to others. See, whenever we we believe this lie that God loves me more when I'm obedient, it has a lot of different effects on us. Now, I might say this, and many of you go, you know, Merrick, I really don't think I struggle with that. Well, in principle, I would say most people would probably say, I don't believe this. I don't believe that God loves me more whenever I'm obedient. But what I would say is in practice, most, if not all of us, do struggle with this idea. Most of us do have the idea that, you know what, if I miss my quiet time, something could go wrong in my day. 
Or if I do my quiet time, I know God's going to be with me today. You know what, if I go to church, God's going to be with me. If I pray, God's going to be with me. But you know what, if I don't do these things, God is somehow going to punish me. I'm going to get a flat tire on the way home, get home. My electricity's going to be out. I'm going to go to charge my phone. It's going to short circuit. Then I'm going to go get Wi-Fi. Like, you have all these misconceptions about these ideas that if I'm disobedient, God for some reason is going to punish me. And sometimes if we are disobedient and something happens to us, we think that God is exacting or enacting revenge upon us, and that's just not true. So whether we believe this in principle or not, my guess is that many of us do practice this. Many of us do have this misconception. If you have God's word with you tonight, please turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at a very familiar story. It's known by most people as the parable of the prodigal son. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story, and we're going to notice several things about the story, but we're going to look and see specifically the character of God's love that we find within this story. So as a reminder, to say that God loves me more when I'm obedient isn't a misunderstanding of us. It's a misunderstanding of God. It's a misunderstanding of the character of God's love and the way that he loves. And so as we look at the prodigal son, I want to start by saying this. This story oftentimes has been taught as it's it's a story about this younger son who goes off and does all this bad stuff and comes back and the father forgives him and everything's great. And that's usually where it ends. But this story is not about a younger son. This story is about two lost sons. There's a younger brother and an older brother, both of which who are lost. What you're also going to see in this story is the younger son isn't even the main character. The father is the main character of the whole story, and you'll see that. And as we look at this, we'll see the Father's love, and we'll learn two things and two core truths about God's love to help us with this misconception. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for, for your word. God, I thank you for the truth that, that whenever I open the word, whenever we open your word, we have the very words of God. Lord, I pray tonight that we would listen and believe that truth, that we would listen expectantly, God, that we would listen because all of us in some way struggle with this misconception. Lord, show us more about yourself tonight. Show us more about your love and reveal to us in our hearts tonight what needs to be changed. We thank you, God, for your grace in the midst of our misconceptions. And that's all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So once again, we're going to look at two core truths about God's love. The first core truth is this. God's love for us is not dependent on us. The first core truth is this. God's love for us is not dependent on us. Look at Luke 15. We're going to start verses 1 through 2. Jesus says this. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So it starts with this idea that tax collectors and sinners, this one group of people, are coming to Jesus. And then these Pharisees and the scribes, these other people are coming to Jesus. You have the really the muck of society, the sinners. I mean, literally, they called them the sinners. And then you have the religious elite. And you have these two parties here. And Jesus starts talking about some parables. He talks about three parables. He has a parable of the lost sheep. He has a parable of the lost coin. And then a parable of what I would say would be the two lost sons. The first parable, he talks about this. He says, if, if a shepherd is watching a hundred sheep and one of those sheep leaves and runs off, doesn't the shepherd leave 99 and go find that one sheep? And the whole point of his story, he says, once he finds that sheep, he rejoices 
And he says, there's also joy in heaven amongst the angels over one sinner who repents. Then he goes into the next story about a lost coin. He says, this woman has ten silver coins. Each coin would equal a whole day's wage, which would be vital for someone who's living day to day. If she has ten silver coins and she loses one of these coins, will she not wreck her house trying to find that coin? And once she finds it, call her friends and say, hey, y'all, I found the coin. And he says, once again, there's joy over one sinner who repents. And then we get to this next story where we see a story about two lost sons. Let's read it in bits. I was going to read it all together, but it's a little bit long, so we're going to take it in bits, and we're just going to kind of move through this story quickly. Starting with verse 11, it says this, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. You can stop right there. There was a man who had two sons. This, this is kind of predicating what's coming. We have two sons. We have two stories. We have two plot lines. It says, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So once again, Jesus is talking about this father who has two sons. And one of his sons walks up to him and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance that is coming to me. This would have been a shocking request. Basically what the son was telling his dad is I want what I'm supposed to get after you die right now. Essentially, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. This is a shocking request, especially during this time. I mean, the father would have had every reason to just kick the son out. No inheritance, no nothing. He could have just kicked him out. But what you see is the father actually grants his request, which is really, really interesting. We, all, we also see that it took him several days to gather up his stuff And then he goes into a far country and he squanders all that he has. He goes and he just wastes it all. Spends it on whatever. Look at 14 through 16. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So once again, he, he gets this inheritance from his dad, which had been a large sum of money, a lot of money. And he goes off, and he says he go, goes to a faraway country. In other words, he goes a long ways off. His idea is not only am I disowning my dad, I want to get as far away from y'all as I possibly can. And to say that he went and squandered it in reckless living, it gives this idea that he was all about the parties. He was all about going and, and, and drink whatever I want, do whatever I want, sleep with whoever I want, get as much as I can, be the life of the party. I have the possessions. I have the status. I have the pleasure. It's filling himself with all the things that he literally wanted, which were all the things that he thought would make him happy. And then we see that a severe famine comes over the land, and this is while he has nothing. And we see someone who once lived comfortably at his estate, basically like a prince, now going somewhere and squandering all that he has, and he is at a low point, to say the least. It says that he's at a point where he's begging to find work, and then the work that he even does get, he's helping to feed pigs, and he's longing to just eat what the pigs were eating. Y'all, once again, for an Israelite, this would be an incredible insult. To be around pigs was unclean. To eat pigs was unclean. You could not eat pork. 
And so what, what Jesus is saying is this guy was at the lowest of lowest of lowest, and what was considered unclean, he desired what they were eating. It would be like this. Imagine being at a spot where you're so low, you envy your neighbor's dog for the food that they have. You just wish you could eat what the neighbor's dog had. He was at an extremely low point, to say the very least. And he found out a hard truth, that what he thought would satisfy him didn't. The sin, he thought that if he just got this, he would be fulfilled. He found out that it didn't give him what it promised him. Instead, he was empty. Look at verse 17 through 19. It says, and when he came to himself, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So we see this. He's sitting there. He's in the midst of this, in the midst of this struggle, obviously. And it's almost like he's imagining, wait a minute. Even the servants have more than enough bread. They have more than enough food there. They have more. They have abundance there. I can go back. I'm not a son of his anymore. Legally, I'm no longer a son. Once I got my inheritance and did not claim him as my dad anymore, legally, I'm no longer a son of him. Maybe I can go back and maybe he'll just let me work for him and repay my debt to him. And you see this in what he says. He says that he knows that he no longer can be called a son. He goes back expecting, expecting to be punished. He goes back hoping just to be a hired hand, inferior to his brother. And as a hired hand, he hoped that he could start paying off the debt that he owed his dad. Basically, as the listeners are listening to this story, there's one evident large question that is blaring out of this passage, is how will the father respond? How will the father respond? The son humiliated and shamed the dad to the point where the dad had every right to just disown him, but he didn't. He gave him this massive inheritance. Now he's taken it and he's squandered it all, doing all that he wants to do, and now he's going to go back to his dad. I can't imagine the thoughts that are running through his head, but look at how the story continues. Verses 20 to 23, it says this, And he arose and came to his father, a neat a neat thought here is the word saying that he came to his father is another indicator that the father is the central figure. He didn't go to his father and say he arose and went to his father. It says he came. The father is the central figure. He arose and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get out the last sentence, and it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Y'all, I want you to think about this. I know I'm not the only one in here who's done something wrong before. I know I'm not the only one in here who's done something where you were afraid to get in front of your authority. Most of us, that would be our parents. I'm sure we've all have done something that we know there's going to be a reckoning the second that they see me and, and it's just going to go down. And if you're like me, you're trying to think, okay, how can I not lie but turn the truth any possible way to put me in a better light, right? As you're walking back or as you're driving back, you're thinking, okay, before I get to them, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And I want you to imagine this son. 
literally, we've heard this story so much, I'm sure, but imagine the son. He's been around pigs. No telling how long it's been since he's eaten. It's a famine. He just traveled that same far distance all the way back home. He probably looked a little bit different. He, he definitely was gross. He definitely, he'd been around pigs. He, no doubt he smelled awful. He looked awful and whatnot. And he's probably just thinking, maybe he'll accept me back. Maybe he'll just let me be a hired servant. But here we see the hero of the story. We see that the father, it says that whenever he saw him, while he was still a long ways off, you know, this shows that the father was waiting, he was hoping, he was expectant that the son would come back. While he was still far away off, it says he felt compassion for him. You see, the, I'm sure the dad probably knew that what his son was looking for, he really wasn't going to get. He felt compassion for him as he was walking back, and it says he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And y'all, at this point, literally, it would have almost been too shocking for the listeners. It would have been too shocking for somebody who's the patriarch of a family to run. It would have been one of the most disgraceful things they could have ever done. It's going to sound funny to us, but to show your knees in that society was a disgrace. I had a friend say, knees are ugly. It is what it is. But to show your knees in that society was a disgrace. And you can imagine this dad not caring what anybody thought, not worried about what anybody would say. He picks up his robe and he takes off and he runs after his son. Whatever shame or embarrassment it brought on him, he did not care. And Jesus is trying to make a distinct point here. The father's not worried about his dignity. He's concerned about his son. He's not worried about what it costs him to go get him. No cost is too big for the father. And it's in this moment that the son would have seen unconditional love like he never had seen before. It was in this moment that the father displayed and initiated unconditional love with the younger son. Know this, you never initiate love with God, ever. He is always the initiator in the relationship. Can you imagine the son, he's coming back hoping he can pay it off, hoping that he can do this, but the father knows that the cost is too big, he could never pay him back, so he forgives the debt and takes care of the debt for him. The gospel is so clear in this passage. An interesting note to jot down. This is the only time in all of Scripture that you see God or someone depicted as God in a hurry. The only time you see God in a rush. The only time you see God running. And it's whenever he's running after the son who's been lost. But has come to repent and now is found. Our love for God is always a response to the love that he has already shown us. God's love for us is not dependent upon us it's always the other way around y'all think about this once again god's love for us is not dependent on us if it was dependent on us he never would have sent his son in the first place if his love was dependent upon us jesus never would have come down from heaven to us we have proof of this romans 5 8 god demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners not initiating love, not looking for him, not running towards him. While we're in the midst of our sin, Ephesians 2 says, dead, he came to us and paid the penalty for our sin. For God so loved the world that he sent. He took the initiative, his one and only son, to pay the price for us that you and I could be reconciled back to God. He's the initiator. It's not you and it's not me because we can't initiate apart from him. You know, God doesn't love us more based on what we do. 
God doesn't love us more or less based on what we do or what we don't do. As a matter of fact, when we were at our worst, he came and gave us his everything. Because, man, he loves us more than you and I honestly could ever imagine. To live as a follower of Jesus and think that God loves us more when we are obedient is to misunderstand the character of God's love. He loves his bride, the church, with a love that's unconditional. And y'all, to be fair, we don't know what unconditional love looks like. We don't. Unfortunately, the one picture that God specifically gave us to look like his love for the church is marriage. And my gosh, what does it look like in our culture? Unconditional love isn't a part of the marriage contract anymore. This is why you see people that are our age writing their own vows. Now, I'm not against that, but hear what I'm saying. They write their vows, and for a lot of them, most of them that I've heard, they're expressing the current love for them. They're like, I don't want to use that old stuff. I want it to be more personal. I love you because this and this. And this, a vow is not, is not anything that's expressing your current love for someone. A vow is saying no matter what happens down the road, look left or look right and I will be there. And we have a culture that knows nothing of that. For richer, for poor, for sickness, and in health, no matter what, I'm going to be with you. Y'all, I'll never forget one of my... I mean, my, my mindset was so changed a lot in marriage whenever I was attending a service one time, and this guy was talking about marriage, and specifically how to have a biblical marriage. And he said, me and my wife, whenever we got married, we vowed that the D word would never be a part of our house, and the D word meaning divorce. It would never come up. It was never an option. And he said, I'll never forget, later on in our marriage, whenever times got really hard, my wife looked at me one time and said, I think we need to separate for a little while. I think you might need to move out. And he said, I told her, okay, but as far as I'm going is the backyard. I'll take my stuff and move it out there, but I'm not leaving you. Unconditional love is something you and I struggle with because we have rarely ever seen it. But hear me, you want to see it? Look at the cross. You want to see it? Look to Jesus and the whole point of this story is not about the central figure the younger son the whole point of this story is the love of the father regardless of what the son did to him and we see joy over a repenter who sins I mean joy over a sinner who repents verse 7 verse 10 joy over a sinner who repents and then now here look at what he does for him it says that he Whenever he goes and he tries to give his spiel, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to the last part. And the father says to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf. Basically, we're celebrating. He was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Once again, someone's repenting and there's joy and celebration. Guys, once again, even though we can't see what unconditional love is, remember this. God is not like us. He's not. God is not like us. He loves us in a way that we never will fully comprehend. But one thing is certain. His love isn't dependent upon us. And that's by His grace. So the first is this. God's love for us is not dependent upon us. And as we flip and look to the older brother, we're going to see something else. God's love for us cannot be coerced or earned by us. 
God's love cannot be coerced or forced. He cannot become in debt to us. It cannot be coerced or earned. Look at me in Luke 15, 25 through 30. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, being faithful and working, as I'm sure he always did. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. There obviously was a massive celebration going on. So I'm sure he started brainstorming, what's this about? Who's this for? And he called one of the servants and asked, what, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. I guess I'll go on through. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. While we see the younger son shame the dad by openly saying, you're dead to me. We see the older brother shaming his dad by not coming into the celebration. And this time, once again, by not delighting in something or enjoying or being a part of the celebration that your dad threw, you are openly shaming him to the people that are around you. And once again, notice who the initiator is. The dad, the father. He's the one who goes out to the older brother. And once again, the father had every right to shame the older son, to tell him to get away. He could even legally be able to disown him once again. But what does he do? It says that he entreats him. He came out and he talked to him as the initiator. And what you see from the older brother, once again, is this mis misconception that we're talking about. What he essentially says is you should love me more because of what I've done for you. You should love me more because I've already, always been here. You should love me more because of everything that I have done for you. Once again, look at his response to him. Look at all the personal pronouns. He starts by talking back by saying, look, disrespectful. And then look at all the first person pronouns. He says, I have served you. I've never disobeyed you. You never gave me a young goat, which is what I deserve, that I might celebrate with my friends. And then this son of yours comes up. He's livid. He's irate. And you can tell in his voice the struggle with this guy is he's saying, I've always been here. I'm the one that deserves this. He doesn't deserve to even be here. Now, if we're honest, to relate to the older brother, you and I would probably be angry in some ways as well. By leaving and taking his inheritance and leaving, the inheritance got that much smaller, right? It didn't get into the older brothers, but his act, the father's possessions got smaller. Now, by the son coming back and becoming a son again, that smaller portion, he now can get inheritance once again. But honestly, it doesn't seem like that's what the older brother is mad about. He's not mad about the inheritance thing. He's mad about he's not getting what he deserves. And y'all, what we see here is a story of two lost sons. Two lost sons. The problem with both of these is both of these sons was trying to act and be its own Savior and Lord. Albeit looking very differently, both of these were trying to save themselves. The younger brother was self-discovery. We know a lot of people that do this. They go, you know, religion's just not for me, or I'm not about that life right now. I'm going to look for the three main things 1 John talks about. 1 John 2.16, the way the devil tempts us. Passions, pleasures, possessions, status, position. Any other P words I can use? That's what he does. 
right? And so here, here's the idea is it's going in self-discovery. I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to indulge in whatever I want to indulge in. I'm going to live my own way. And it isn't too difficult to detect people that struggle with this lifestyle. But the one that's harder to detect and what I would argue is the main thing that plagues the southern church is the older brother. And he's lost because of his moral goodness. He's lost because he thinks that his morality and how good he's doing things is what actually saves him. Self-righteousness is what saves him. And the problem with this is he has a problem of attitude, of motive, and of his heart. He thinks that he can do things outwardly and God's going to bless him inwardly because of what he is doing. It's the idea of this for you and me. Read your Bible, go to church, stay here, don't have sex, don't smoke weed, don't do those things, do these things, be a good person, and you're a Christian, which is not at all true. It's the lie that morality is the way to God, and that's not true. And we see, once again, a lost son. I love how Timothy Keller puts it. He goes, if you examine the younger son and the elder son close enough, you'll notice that the opposite of these two is what a Christian is actually supposed to look like. This one who repents, this one who follows the Lord, this one who is obedient, but he does it out of a heart and an attitude that's for God and not for himself. Once again, our motivation and our attitude matter. Let me explain it this way. So there's a story that's actually in the Apocrypha. For the sake of this conversation, the Apocrypha, in the Apocrypha, it's, it's a series of books. It has stories about Jesus in it. Um, it's not included in the Bible, but it has stories about Jesus in it. Well, in the Apocrypha, there's a story about Jesus and Peter, which I think really shines a lot of light on this and shows how our attitudes and motivations really do matter. And the story basically is this. is one day Jesus said to the disciples, I'd like for you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any explanation, so the disciples looked around for a stone to carry, and Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulation for weight and size, so he found the smallest stone he could find, and he put it in his pocket, and Jesus said to his disciples, follow me. He led them on a journey, and about noontime, about noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down, and he waved his hands, and all the stones turned into bread. He said, now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, poor Peter was done with his lunch. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up, and he said again, I'd like for you to carry a stone for me. This time, Peter goes, okay, I got this. I got this game. So he looked around and saw a small boulder, Peter-like. He hoisted it on his back, and it was painful, and it made him stagger. And Jesus once again tells his disciples, follow me. And Peter struggles to keep up, but he stays on the journey with him. And around supper time, Jesus led them to the side of a river, and he said, throw the stone into the river. So they threw the stone into the river, and Jesus says, follow me. And all the disciples are looking at each other. They're going, okay, something's not right here. They look confused. And Jesus sighed, and he turns and looks at them, and he says, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who are you carrying the stone for? The command was, I'd like for you to carry a stone for me. Who are you carrying the stone for? And guys, hear me. Whether we want to admit it or not, this is a misconception that can come in our life where we think that God, we can coerce him or we can get in good standing with him or we can make him bless us by doing the right things. And our quiet times aren't about us. It's about knowing him more. 
Coming to church isn't about blessing us. Coming to church is about singing and worshiping God with a community and body of believers because he is worthy of it. Not because he'll bless us because of it. We don't not have sex in our relationship so God will bless us. We don't not go and do the don'ts so that he will bless us. Our motive and our attitude matter to God. Because God doesn't want you just to obey for the sake of obeying. He wants you to obey out of your love and faith for him and for his glory and his glory alone. While the son may have been obedient and faithful and loyal and all those things, his heart and attitude were in the wrong place. And therefore, he was just as lost as the younger brother. Look at how the story ends. Verses 31 and 32. It says, And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the son treasured his relationship with his dad because of the benefits. He worked hard for his dad because of what he could get out of it. But what his dad is saying is what you should be doing this for is because of our relationship. All that I have is yours. You are always with me. Y'all, the essence of Christianity is based in a relationship with God. God doesn't want just our works. God doesn't just want our morality. God wants us. He wants you, and he wants me, and he wants us personally. This is the essence of Christianity. That once again, the two things that we see in this story from the loving Father is this. God's love for us is not dependent upon us. And God's love for us cannot be coerced or earned. I'm going to go back to some statements that I made at the beginning, and I want to change this for us and hopefully change this misconception. Instead of saying, if I'm obedient, then I expect God to bless me, or instead of having that mindset, we should think like this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are being obedient, then you can expect that the Lord, out of his great love for you, will bless you more by showing you more of himself. You can expect that he will bless you more by showing you more of himself. John 8, 31, one of the great truths, if you abide, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Look what happens. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, look, you get three things. You get assurance of your salvation. We talk about assurance being based on a prayer. That's not what we see in Scripture. He says, if you abide in me, you are truly my disciples. You'll know this by obedience and by the fruit of your life. Secondly, he says, you will know the truth. I'll continue to show you more and more of my love and my goodness, and you'll see more and more of me. You'll know me more and more. And then, y'all, this is a big one. And the truth will set you free. You know what true freedom really is? True freedom is doing what you want to do and what you love to do, and that thing being what God has called you to do, because that thing is the thing that's ultimately going to bring you joy and fulfillment in this life. Freedom is whenever you live free from regret and from grieving and from the sin of your past and from worry and from pain and from the sin that you know is going to come back because God's word is clear. We don't get away with our sin. Sin might be fun, but it definitely is fun with a cost, and it will come back to bite you one way or another. But true freedom is to live as God has called you to live and to love to live that way, and in that, you'll find what freedom really is. And hear this, our obedience to him isn't for him to love us more. 
Our obedience to him isn't for him to love us more. It's for us to love him more. We obey, and as we obey, we grow closer to him. And that's why we obey. The second thing is, instead of saying, if I am disobedient, then I can expect God to punish me or for him to enact revenge or whatnot. We have to think like this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are being disobedient or are living in sin, then you can expect God to discipline you out of his great love for you. You can expect God to discipline you out of his great love for you. Notice this isn't punishment. Punishment is dealing with something from the past. Discipline is working on something for the future. There's a difference. Discipline has a lesson. Punishment does not. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12 says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves or he corrects or he disciplines him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God disciplines you just because he loves you. Because he loves you. Hebrews 12, 11 says this, At the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It seems painful, but if you're trained by the discipline, you'll see that it yields righteousness, it yields fruit. Y'all, a, a verse that changed my life is Proverbs 1, where it says, If you turn at my reproof or my correction or my discipline, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour my spirit out to you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, you will grow closer to the Lord through discipline. If you turn and you follow him and you heed his warnings. I want to end the whole sermon and the whole thought process and this whole topic by calling you once again to look at the end of this story. In Jesus-like fashion, he does something that oftentimes we miss because we focus so much on the younger son. I want you to notice he ends by saying it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And you're left with a question once again. What did the older brother do? Jesus doesn't say. What did the older brother do? How does this story actually end? Well, Jesus doesn't do anything on accident. If you go back once again and look at the context, look at who he's talking to, In verses 1 and 2, we see once again, now the tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a. younger brother, the people who are wasting away as sinners, they're they're over here, the younger brother. And then he goes and he says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who do you think the older brother is in the story? Pharisees and the scribes, the righteous. The ones who morally, they've got it all together. And literally this whole passage, all of chapter 15, is about repentance. The lost sheep, joy over repentance. The lost coin, joy and repentance. The son coming back in repentance, celebration, and the question that Jesus is asking to them, and not so subtly, they would have known what he was saying is, will you repent and follow me? Will you repent and surrender to me? And I want to end by saying this, y'all. Whenever we talk about God's unconditional love, that is for his bride, his church, people who are followers of him. And what I want to tell you is there are people in this room who are either a younger brother or an older brother. And just as God 
Jesus here is calling them to repent. The cry for you tonight isn't to look at the unconditional love of the Father that he continues to give us. It's for you to understand that what he's calling you to do tonight is repent and to believe in him. Maybe you're like the younger brother and you're just living your own way. You're doing your own thing. Once again, it's about fulfilling your pleasures, living in any way that makes you feel good. Maybe it's possessions, living in any way to see what you can have, pleasing your eyes. Or maybe it's living in status or popularity, living for your own name and for your own glory. The message that's clear in this text is repent. And the loving Father will welcome you with glad arms. And know this, he's already initiating it by you hearing the gospel now. Maybe you're the older brother. Maybe you come in tonight and you go, you know what? I know I'm a Christian because I look at my resume, and I know I've talked about this before. You look at all the things that you've done, or you're here tonight, or you you do your quiet times, and once again, your attitude and your motivation in the midst of all this has been completely wrong. The question for you tonight, once again, is will you repent? God's message in here is clear for us, and his desire is to celebrate and rejoice over those who repent and follow him. God's love isn't dependent upon us. And praise him for that, because if so, he never would have sent his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you once again for the truths that we find in your word. God, I thank you once again for sending Jesus, and and not only in him do we see the, the perfect way to live, not only in him do we see the way that we're not able to live, not only in him... Do we see him dying in our place and rising three days later, defeating sin and death and then calling us to follow him? But we see him giving us story after story after story to help us who struggle with unconditional love to understand more of what it looks like. To understand more of what it really means to be loved by God, which is something that's so deep we'll never fully jump in the immensity of it. God, I pray tonight that your spirit would be moving in this place. As there are people here who I know don't know you. There's people here, Lord, who are either a younger brother or an older brother, and they know that you're calling them to repent. Lord, I pray that they would do that tonight. Lord, I pray also for the believers in this room who still lean one way or the other and thinking that their obedience is what makes you love them, and somehow you're indebted to them because of it, or you're supposed to bless them because of it, or the exact opposite, those who are beat down by sin in their life and think that whenever they sin, they've disappointed you and that you're going to punish them, and God, those aren't true. Lord, do the impossible work that only you can do tonight and help us see you clearly. Help us see your love clearly and help us respond. And ask all this, Father, in your precious and holy Son's name. Amen. As usual, I'm going to call you to respond. Anytime we read God's word or anytime it is preached, we respond either by listening to it and walking away or by listening and meditating on it and growing because of it. And I want to ask you first off, if you're a follower of Jesus tonight, will you cry out to him? Recognizing the faithful love that he has blessed you with, that he initiated That it's on him and it's not on you. It's because of his great love. Maybe tonight if you're a follower of Christ, I want to ask you, will you correct this misconception in your life? Will you pursue Christ out of love for him and not what you can gain out of it? I know tonight some of you in here are struggling with sin. And you're struggling with the guilt 
that comes upon you. Guilt should not be a part of your life anymore. God says clearly that you're called to repent, and whenever you do repent, he will forgive you. Recognize that even in your sin, God loves you enough to stand there and say, I knew it was going to happen. And you know what? I chose to die for you anyway. I knew this would happen, but I'm going to love you anyway. Cry out to him in love tonight, whatever you may be in that. And once again, tonight, if you aren't following Jesus, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask, will you repent and believe in him tonight? Whatever's holding you back, as a younger brother, understand that life won't fulfill. I've been down that road. It won't fulfill. It won't bring you what it promises. We can only find our joy and fulfillment in Christ. Will you repent and believe in him tonight? If you're the older brother, once again, I went down that road too. I want to beg you, repent and follow Jesus tonight. I'll be in the back. My wife will be in the back. If we're not available, Jacob will be here. I have other leaders. I'm going to ask you tonight, respond tonight, singing, standing, whatever you do, respond.